0: This episode is brought to you by BlockFi. BlockFi is building a bridge between cryptocurrencies and traditional financial and wealth management products. They're creating innovative products to advance the digital asset ecosystem for both individual and institutional investors. And its platform now manages more than 12 billion in assets. Full disclosure, I became excited enough about this company that I ended up becoming an investor. But moving on, BlockFi, that's B L O C K F I, offers a wide spectrum of services. And I'll mention just a few here. First, Their BlockFi Rewards Visa Signature Credit Card provides an easy way to earn more Bitcoin because you can earn 3.5% in Bitcoin back on all purchases in your first three months and 1.5% forever after with no annual fee. Second, BlockFi also lets clients, that would be you, Easily buy or sell cryptocurrencies, including, but not limited to, they have a wide selection, Bitcoin, Ether, Litecoin, and PAXG, as well as USD, that's United States dollars-based stable coins, including USDC, GUSD, and PAX. BlockFi aggregates liquidity to offer seamless trade execution and pricing. BlockFi also offers instant ACH, so you can move funds onto the platform and immediately start trading. On their platform, you will soon be able to trade with ACH meaning that you'll be able to buy cryptocurrencies directly with your bank account. And there's a lot more coming. So check it out. For a limited time, you can earn a crypto bonus of $15 to $250 in value. Again, for a limited time, you can earn a crypto bonus of $15 to $250 in value when you open a new account. Get started today at BlockFi.com slash Tim and use code Tim at signup. That's BlockFi.com, dot com slash Tim and code Tim. This episode is brought to you by Tonal. Imagine having an entire gym's worth of equipment in a device smaller than a flat-screen TV, something that could fit potentially even in a closet fits in my closet. By eliminating traditional weights, Tonal can deliver 200 pounds of resistance with a sleek design that can fit nearly anywhere. It's like having an entire gym and personal trainer right in your home. Tonal's patented digital weight system senses your strength and adjusts the weight automatically in real time so you can get the most out of every workout. I have a number of friends, including competitive athletes, who have doubled their strength in short order in a lot of exercises. And Part of the reason that's possible is it uses a revolutionary system of dynamic resistance powered by electric motors for strength you can feel. You can also do things like eccentrics. Over time, Tonal learns from your body and automatically increases the weight exactly when you can handle it. Tonal also uses 17 sensors to provide real-time feedback on your form and technique, allowing you to get the most effective workout every time. It's a strength training machine with adjustable arms that provides more than 170 exercises for a full body workout. And that can include squats, deadlifts, bench presses, overhead pulls, bicep curls, and more. So check it out. Try Tonal, the smartest home gym for 30 days in your home. Tonal is so confident that you'll love it, they offer a full money back guarantee. You can now get Tonal from $63 per month at 0% interest over 48 months. Visit www.tonal.com, www.tonal, and for a limited time, get $100 off when you use promo code TIM100 at checkout. That's www.tonal.com, promo code TIM100, one zero zero. Tonal, be your strongest. Optimal, minimal. At this altitude, I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start shaking. Can
1: I answer you a personal question? Now it is seen
2: perfect time. What if I did the album? I'm a cybernetic organism living tissue over a metal endoskeleton. The
1: Tim
0: Show. Hello, boys and girls, ladies and germs. This is Tim Ferriss, and welcome to another episode of The Tim Ferriss Show, where it is my job to interview world-class performers from all different fields, all different stripes to tease out the frameworks... The habits, routines, favorite books, all the goodies that you can apply test in your own lives. My guest today, I'm very excited about Diana Chapman. C-H-A-P-M-A-N. Diana is a co-founder of the Conscious Leadership Group and a co-author of the book, The 15 Commitments of Conscious Leadership, which I am rereading right now. It just so happens. Her passion is to help organizational leaders and their teams eliminate drama in the workplace and beyond. She's worked with more than 1,000 CEOs and is a well-respected facilitator for the Young Presidents Organization, YPO, working with their forums and chapters worldwide. She's been a speaker at TEDx, Mindful Leadership Summit, Wisdom 2.0, Stanford Graduate School of Business and many more. When Diana is not with her clients, she can often be found gardening at her suburban homestead in the Santa Cruz Mountains of California. Sounds nice, doesn't it? She lives there with her husband of more than 30 years. You can find her online at conscious.is on Twitter. The handle is at @consciouslg. Facebook Conscious Leadership Group and on YouTube Conscious is Now. And there's so many different directions I could go, but first Diana, welcome to the show. So nice to see you.
2: Oh, thank you so much. I'm really happy to be here.
0: So I thought I would just establish some bona fides right off the bat, and then we're going to do a little chronological shuffling. So first, I want to read a quote from the team portion of the website. So under your name at conscious.is, there's a quote from... Dustin Moskovitz. Now, for those who don't know who Dustin is, Dustin is co-founder of Asana. Prior to that, he was co-founder of Facebook. In 2011, he was, at least at the time, the youngest self-made billionaire in the history of the planet, as far as I know. And here's the quote: Quote: Working with Diana has dramatically changed the way I react to challenges and stress in my life, preserving my energy to direct towards more constructive pursuits. As a coach, she has a gift for guiding me through introspection on the stories I create about events and people in a structured way that inevitably leads to perspective shifts. We can't control the fact that bad things are gonna happen, but how we react to those events is what really matters. And that we can learn to control. When we have the right attitude and resourcing, adversity becomes strictly an opportunity to learn and grow. Okay. So, this is the kind of quote that a lot of folks would kill for, maybe die for, certainly amputate a few fingers for. Before we dig into all sorts of juicy bits that we could pull out of that quote as a jumping off point, I want to go back to 1997. So, I did not expect to find this. I didn't expect to find anything in particular, but this is what I found. This is on Cridio.com. In 1997, Diana Chapman was a stay-at-home mom teaching scrapbooking in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Quote, as mainstream a life as they come, end quote, she says. I didn't know any of this. So number one, you can't believe everything you read on the internet. So is this true? And then assuming some aspect of it is true, could you Tell us about the gift from your brother in law around that time.
2: Yeah, so it is true. I was the quintessential stay at home mom, all things being with my kids, being part of the school, you know, head of the PTA, all that good stuff. And I was, though, very interested in personal development, spirituality, human consciousness. That was always in the background. But I was very devoted to my children. I was teaching scrapbooking to other moms. I mean, I was so cute. I was, um, I, was, I was really cute. And my brother-in-law was a top CEO in the country, and he was very, very devoted to personal development. And he was a connoisseur of finding great coaches. And I think the truth was that he and my sister-in-law were concerned about my marriage and Mm. wondered if we were going to make it. And so they recommended that we go out to California and take a training with Gay and Kathleen Hendricks of the Hendricks Institute. And so actually they gave us five grand. He said, you can do whatever you want with the money, but I'm going to recommend you go out to California. So I joyfully could not wait to go. I didn't know anything about them, but he said they're the best. So off we went and it was a profoundly life-changing week. And I thought to myself, why am I just learning these tools, and I'm going to devote the rest of my life making sure people get access to them. And that's what I've done.
0: What did you feel or experience or what changes did you observe that led you to have such a strong reaction?
2: First of all, I learned about this thing called the drama triangle, which many people out there may have heard about. I realized my whole life is running around on this drama triangle. And the drama triangle was created by Stephen Cartman back in the 70s. And he defined ways in which human beings get caught in victimhood that create reactivity. And I realized I'm on the triangle most of the time. And there is a big cost to me and my people when I'm on a drama triangle. And so that was the wake up call for me. And then I just spent every day since looking for all the tools I can for how to keep myself out of that triangle as much as possible.
0: Since you mentioned it, let's just jump right into the drama triangle. Could you give us an overview of what it is and how you might use it?
2: Okay. So Cartman says, many of us got trained to live in a state of victimhood. And there are three unique flavors of victimhood in the drama triangle. We call them bases. So the first base is the pure victim. And the pure victim, you know, it's so hard here. I'm trying. I don't know. It's just any kind of a, oh, help. You know, it's got this very disempowered feeling. And it's somehow like they've got the power. Somebody else has it, not me. And I'm very at the effect of things. So I could be at the effect of my bank account, at the effect of this email that just came in, at the effect of the traffic, at the effect of the new... Policy on going back to work at the effect of COVID. All those things are forms of being a victim. Then the next role in the drama triangle is the villain, and the villain's job is to blame. So I can blame me. God, I should have known that, or I should have been more prepared, or any should have over here on me, or I'm not smart enough, or I can't count on myself. That's all villaining toward myself, or we can villain toward another. You know, you, you're the reason why I'm not having as much fun as I could be having or we could be a villain to a group of people, which is very popular in our culture. So we all know who's screwing it up for the rest of us. You know, it's that group over there and everybody's pointing to particular groups who are the bad guys. So villain's very popular because it gets our adrenaline really
0: kicking. In. I think it's actually in the terms of service on Twitter that you have to play that role when you use <laughs> the service. Anyway, just a side note. Please.
1: Right. <laughs> right. Who's
2: screwing it up? Who's wrong? Yeah, you don't know. You're wrong. I'm right. And so, the last role in the drama triangle is the hero. It's also called the reliever or the rescuer. And the hero's job is to seek temporary relief. So, oh my God, I had such a hard day today at work. Let me come home. I'm going to drink my alcohol or do my gaming or get lost in Netflix or whatever I'm going to do to give myself some temporary relief. And it works. But I got to do it again tomorrow because tomorrow I'm going to come home, potentially burn out again, and then I'm going to have to do the same pattern. So heroing is temporary relief over and over again. So I can hero myself. I could hero another, you know, oh, you look like you're struggling at work and let me take over some of your work that you're doing. I could do that from a place of real presence, but when I'm a hero doing it, I'm actually creating some codependence where I keep needing you to not be able to handle your work so I can keep helping. And then I'll resent you over time. And then we can hero them. You know, There's lots of philanthropies, especially in the past, they're getting better at this now, where we just throw a bunch of money at a population. And then next year, they have all the same issues and they need more money and nothing ever really changes. So the key thing is temporary relief. So we all know the story about you can give the man a fish every night, or you could teach him to fish for himself. So the hero gives the man the fish night after night after night. Mm. And if you're off the drama triangle, you shift to a place where you see people as empowered and the hero asks good questions to help people get more effective around them.
0: So my next question, I want to share an observation from my rereading of the book And then the next question, just to plant the seed, is I'm going to ask you why it's called the drama triangle, what drama actually means here. But in my reread, which I'm in the middle of right now, of the 15 Commitments of Conscious Leadership, which was recommended to me by Dustin, and I think it was also recommended in my last book, and Tribe of Mentors by Dustin. And There's a section that I needed to reread, which was related to the drama triangle, and it pointed out that the villain could take the form of someone in a meeting who to try to resolve conflict, or maybe not resolve, to try to minimize conflict always takes the blame. Like eventually at the end of the meeting, they just say, you know what, it's my fault. I should have done this, 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 and this. And it's easy, at least for me, to conflate radical responsibility with overly blaming myself for everything. And I don't actually have a great way to approach navigating discerning those two for me, if that makes any sense. So we could try to unpack that, or we could jump to why it's called the drama triangle, but I'll let you choose the direction.
2: Well, let me do both. So the reason why it's called the drama triangle is because the whole triangle is set up for a nah, nah, nah. It's, I'm right, you're wrong, you're to blame, or I'm to blame. It's not asking everybody to really take 100% responsibility for how they're co-creating experiences. So if I'm in the drama triangle, the villain, if I'm taking on, I'm more responsible, what happens is I'll say, oh, I'm here at the meeting, you guys, and look, it's my fault. I'll take some of your responsibility and take it all on me. And so there is a place to say, hey, I have a part in how I've co-created this. Let me tell you my part. That would be me taking my 100%. I would also know that everybody else has a part to play too. So I'm not taking on their responsibility as well. That's the difference between a villain and somebody who's just simply acknowledging I have a role to play here.
0: Got it. Thank you. So we were chatting before we started recording and you and I have have spoken quite a few times before we've met before spent time together. And you asked me why I invited you on to the podcast. And there were a number of answers I gave. One of them was related to kinesthetic awareness or what our mutual friend and your, business partner, Jim Detmer, have called, at least in, my, in his notes to me for this conversation, <laughs> this may be your term for all I know, BQ. So like IQ, EQ, but body intelligence. And I feel like you're very well calibrated for this. And when we spoke maybe a year and a half ago, two years ago, I was working on this notebook, you might recall. And then as I kept working on it and kept working on it, I kept coming up with great reasons to say no to the entire book, which was very meta, and I ended up stopping. But we spoke a lot about the whole body yes. And I would love to maybe use that as a wedge to start the conversation because I found this so incredibly helpful when I am certainly prone to over-intellectualizing everything into some extremely complicated matrix or spreadsheet or God knows what. So could you lead us into that in whatever way makes sense?
2: Sure. The idea is that we have these different centers of intelligence. So we have our head, our heart, our gut, and IQ, EQ, BQ are some of the ways we might be describing those things these days. So body intelligence is a recognition that I have an instinctual awareness that is known by my sensations, known by how the body feels, and that there's a lot actually there that if we start to drop into the body and pay attention, it's got a lot of guidance for us as does our emotions, as does our intellect. And so... I do have a ton of access to my body intelligence. I think it's what I lead with in my own getting clarity about which directions to go in my life. And I've put a lot of attention on it, so it's very palpable to me. My body screams often, you know, no, don't do that, even though my intellect might have an understanding of why.
0: Let's, if you wouldn't mind, walk people through how they might understand and use the whole body, yes, because for me, when something is screaming, I'm decent at paying attention. But it's not always a scream. Sometimes, no. it's, oftentimes, it is, it is a little more nuanced. So could you walk people through the whole body yes and what the flight checklist looks like?
2: Well, I could have people, if we wanted to, go through an experience of starting to feel what their whole body yes and nose feels like.
0: Great. Yeah, let's do that. Let's do that. Should we do
2: that? It's very experiential. So it'll take about 10 minutes and I'll have people, if they're listening, I'd recommend they close their eyes.
0: Wonderful. Does that work? We have all the time in the world. (laughs) This isn't uh, morning television. (laughs) Okay.
2: So the idea is that your body knows when there's a no, when there's a yes, and when there's what I'm going to call a subtle no. And we say anything other than a whole body yes is a no. And to your point, it's easy to hear those screaming no's, but not so easy to hear the subtle no. For example... Someone contacted our organization the other day and he wanted to talk. And it wasn't clear to me whether he was trying to sell us something or whether he genuinely had clients that he wanted to connect us with. And even in my, I had suspicions that it wasn't as clean as he was suggesting. And I asked for clarification, and his clarification still, I couldn't really tell. But my body did know, "Eh, I felt this. Flat feeling in my body when I thought about having the call. And unfortunately, my head said, Well, maybe you're not sure. So let's have the call. And indeed, it was a sales call and it was not a good use of my time. And I quickly hung up. That was a time in which I skipped over my no because it was very subtle. And my intellect started to get worried like, What if I'm missing something? And, you know, what if you don't know? So I use this all the time, and I'm still learning, as I did just last week, to pay attention to the intelligences that are outside of just my intellect. And so for you all, if you want to learn more about this, what I'd like you to do is close your eyes, and I'd like you to bring to mind an experience from the past that was deeply valuable to you. It was something that was nurturing. It was something you would gratefully repeat that scene again. It could be a time when you were celebrated, it could be a time when you were in a highly creative state that made something valuable. It could be a time when you were in nature feeling deeply
3: centered. And so I'd like you to go back into that scene as best you can and see the images of that scene and hear the sounds. And as you're in that scene, I want you to start to pay attention to the body and see if you can notice just simply how the body is vibrating right now. When you imagine yourself in that scene, seeing those images, hearing the sounds, how does your body vibrate? Is
2: there a particular direction in which energy is flowing through the body? Now, some of you might go, Diane, I'm not feeling anything here. That's fine. Just imagine if you were feeling something. Let it be okay that it it might
3: feel like pretend, just for now? Is there a certain temperature that you notice in the body?
2: For some people, they might feel very specific sensations. It might feel like shapes inside
3: the body. And some people might be auditory and hear tones or see visuals in their mind's eye. What you're doing here is getting a map of what does a whole body yes feel like. I'm just strolling around inside of the body, feeling
2: what you're feeling. No right or wrong answers here. And everybody is so unique. We all have our own different ways we feel it. For me, my body gets warm.
3: There's a uprising of energy. It flows up for me. There's a push in the flow for me, but yours will be what it is. And so then I'd like you to
2: take one last, like a memory, take a memory shot of this so you can remember what this feels like. And then I'd like you to shake it off and let it go. And then I want you to think of a scene in the past that you don't want to repeat. And I don't recommend finding something traumatizing. Find something that you really didn't feel like was a good use of your time, didn't serve you. You don't
3: want to repeat it ever again, or you prefer not to. So, If you can bring that image to mind. And again, see the visuals of that memory and hear the sounds. And I want you to notice what happens now in the body. Is there a different way the body's vibrating? How is the direction of energy flowing or not flowing in this version? Is there a difference in temperature? Any other significant sensations or shapes you
2: feel in, the, in or on the body? And again, tones. In the
3: ears or visuals in your mind's eye may also be included. And you're getting a map for what no, this is a big no, Uh uh-uh. I don't want, I don't want this. I don't think this is going to serve me. Just mapping the territory in the body for what does this feel like? And take one last picture of that and shake that one off. And then we've got one
2: more to do, and this is the subtle no. This is similar to what I was just describing earlier of taking a meeting. You know, it didn't kill me to take the meeting. It didn't hurt. Lasted 10 minutes, and I got off the phone. But I don't, it wasn't a yes. It wasn't an alive experience for me. So this is called a subtle no. So I want you to think back, everybody's got in the last two to four weeks. Something that's happened in which it was a eh, wasn't bad, wasn't good, eh.
3: So if you can come back and see that scene in your mind's eye and hear those sounds. And you're going to check and see what's a subtle no feel like for you? How do you experience that scene? What do you notice in the body? How does it vibrate here? How does energy flow or not flow is there a difference in temperature what parts of the body light up sensations and tones or visuals as well trying on
2: here and again if you notice, don't notice much that's okay just imagine if you did notice what
3: would you notice and this is your map for what a subtle no feels like. And you want to remember this feeling so that the next time somebody says,
2: hey, you want to go out to lunch? Or could you meet me f- to talk about ABC that you, if you feel this, likely it's an invitation for you to try no. And So you can shake that one off and then we'll bring our attention back to the ongoing conversation. How was that for you, Tim?
0: It was a great exercise. It's been a long time since I've done an inventory like that, and I took notes. I took some notes, and I'll share a few things just in case this helps other people. I noticed that all three had different breathing patterns. The breathing was very different, cadence, and feeling. Nice. So that seemed to be a, a very clear variable Mm
1: -hmm.
0: across the three. And just give an example of the clear no, the strong no was frontal head tension, chest tightness, feeling hot, none of which exists in the yes state as an Uh example. And then I thought of this subtle no, which I I don't think I've spent much time on before, which is hilarious because, of course, it's probably where I need to spend the most time is assessing that. And I thought of this experience recently. It was the first example that came to mind because (laughs) I really try not to say yes to things. But sometimes you say yes to things that seem like a yes and then you get into the experience and it's not a yes, right? Right. The, 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 The bill of lading was deceptive. And I ended up at this dinner that was kind of play fancy. I didn't expect it to be play fancy, but it was an expensive dinner and it just was not enjoyable. The food wasn't great, and I didn't want to be there. And I was thinking of this experience, and I noticed that in contrast to the strong yes and the strong no, both of which have a certain degree of focus, I, in the subtle no, have a very, I wrote down shifty energy and fidgety, like mm-hmm. they're just like feeling unsettled. Uh-huh. And that then, I suppose, becomes your landmark off in the distance where you can orient yourself with respect to decision-making or continuing or not continuing with something. So I found this very helpful, and I should also just mention that this has historically been a, what would we call it, a development opportunity, a.k.a. weakness, (laughs) Growth opportunity, slash massive Achilles heel, this body awareness. I think that we could spend a lot of time on it. We don't need to, but just I learned to dissociate very effectively really early on in my life for a lot of reasons. And so it's getting reacquainted with feeling has been a long process. And thank you for that. I found that very helpful. Could you help us connect this to how people would? use this inventory.
2: So I'd recommend starting out using it in really simple ways. So start with looking at a menu. And as you're looking at the menu, just notice like does that fidgety come in when you look at this sandwich, you know, versus this sandwich and see if you can start to see what yes feels like or you're driving back home and you've got a couple of different routes to take home. You know, try on okay, I'm going to go this way and notice what happens in the body versus I go this way. So You're just going to make, make this a practice for things that don't have a lot of meaning that, you know, it's not a big deal. And then as you, you can also do it with time. Let's say you're thinking about gathering up with a group of friends and they say, what time? Try on like, okay, well, what if we met at five and just notice what happens in the body when I try five and then 5.30 and six and 6.30 and just see if you've got like a place where your body starts to hum, like, oh, wow, 6.30, that's where it really hit. And then. Let's choose six thirty. So that's a way to to do it. And then what you'll notice is, at least for me, I really liked the results. I kept creating in these simpler options, and then I just kept using it more and more. So with more important decisions, and then now the biggest decisions. This is something I choose regularly. I and I I've learned to trust it. So that you know, I had a client who I thought was in trouble. In another country. And I contacted the family and said, I think you need to go help this person. And you know, they're like, You want us to leave and go go check on this family member? (laughs) And I said, My body was shaking with clarity about it. My head was like, I I don't know, I'm not I couldn't tell you for sure, but my body knew. And they went and it turned out it was a really could have been a life-saving moment that they went and intellectually, I had some data, but my body was the one that really guided me to be aggressive and getting that person support.
0: Yeah, this this has been really impactful for me. And it seems so simple. And on some levels, it is. But I mean, very often, it's the simple, valuable things that we neglect, perhaps, because we think they are simplistic, but that's not the same thing. And I think that it's common also for people who are very head-centered, intellect-focused, who have been rewarded for that, to just end up being a hammer looking for nails, basically. And I had a lot of trouble identifying what yes felt like, and I still do, if I'm being honest. Mm-hmm. There are times when it's super obvious when I'm just like the yes in all caps and like marquee lights and neon. Yes. Okay, fine. Then I, <laughs> I when it bashes me over the head with like awesomeness, I know what that feels like. But if it's in some cases a meeting or an investment or a person or a dinner with certain people, it's hard for me to identify what a full body yes feels like, but I know what it doesn't feel like if I go from like head to chest to gut, if there's any tension in one of those three, it's a no.
2: Good. Then, then I would say your yes is a void of those sensations. Right. So let that be what it is. Let yourself go. That is a whole body. Yes. My whole body. Yes is a void of those no sensations. Hmm. And that's enough. Don't, you yeah. don't need to make it any more than that.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's true.
2: And it makes sense to me that you might not have the whole light up, you know, some people do have this, zing, you know, that they feel as a yes, but some people don't. And so yeah. just trust your own version of it. So you'll just know, oh, my yes is just is without mm-hmm. the reactive patterns I notice in my body when the no is here.
0: Let's use that as a segue in the fact that I don't have the zing. I'm not sure that the fact I don't have this zing, and I do have it when it's, again, sort of an avalanche of spectacular goodness, but otherwise my yes response can be very muted. I do think that I have trained myself sometimes in the name of stoicism, I think often in the Hope to protect myself from disappointment to not celebrate. And I do think premature celebration of huge business deals and stuff can bite you in the ass, and that's a good idea to temper expectations. At the same time, there's a cost, there's a very real cost to training yourself not to celebrate. And one of the notes that Jim, as in Jim Detmer, for people who are listening, sent to me included I asked him what your superpowers were. And he gave me a number of them. And one was play as a way to live life, increase learnings, deepen relationships, and lead organizations. Diana is the best of anyone I have ever met at living a life of play and inviting others to play along. So for those who don't know Jim, Jim would not say something like this lightly. (laughs) So could you please, this is something that I want to cultivate in myself, and I really am not sure of how to go about it. So I would love to explore this. And you can take that anywhere you would like.
2: When you were talking earlier about not sure you know about that yes, you think maybe you'd like to have more of that. One thing I would say is, I think yeses are very, they're about igniting our creative energy. And our creative energy is very connected to our sexual energy. And so for me, yes, feels very sexual. I feel turned on. And so I think there are a lot of people who put that away for good reasons along the way. And so one of the things that I think is important is for people to start coming back and tuning back into letting themselves be a sexual being, letting themselves have sensations that feel igniting. And, and that doesn't have to mean that you when I go have sex or doing, they're, they're very different things. I know a lot of people are in sex without sexual feelings, so they're separate, but there's a, I want to invite people to feel how good you can feel in the body.
0: How do you do that? I know that sounds silly, but it's like, how do you foster slash allow that? I'm not consciously, I don't have any Catholic guilt or anything that leads me to consciously throttle that. I don't have a voice in my head that says that's not okay. I feel like it's more, if it exists in me, it's more subconscious.
2: Well, just in general, just see if you can find one place in the body that feels pleasurable. It doesn't have to necessarily be named sexual, but just where's the pleasure in the body? And it could just be a tiny little spot or you could feel something like for me right now, there's like a tickle in my chest. I feel some bubbly kind of champagne bubbles coming up through my spine. It feels like it's coming up through, floating out of the top of my head. I feel some warmth in my feet. It's pleasurable. And so it's just starting to put your attention on pleasure itself.
1: Mm.
2: And then keep attending to it, keep giving your attention to it, and then it starts spreading around. And then all of a sudden, there's this really wonderful, like, woohoo quality that's happening in the body. And then for me, that's part of then what ignites the play. There's so much aliveness, joy, creative possibilities. And then it's like, okay, what are we going to do with this? And then how much fun could we have? It's just sort of the water I swim in. (laughs)
0: has it always been that way? Is this Diana out of the box or is it something that either you've trained more in yourself or that you've seen people train effectively, right? In terms of turning the tide, because I'm sure you have a lot of clients, I have to imagine, who are doing therapy, coaching, medicine work, et cetera. And they're like, God, I just need more play. I just need more play. And it's like, okay, well, now what?
2: right? <laughs> well, I might say, let's play with the fact that you need more play. Like, can we make that bigger? Oh, I need more play. Oh God. You're know, like, yeah. I, I tend to say, let's exaggerate everything. Cause that's one of the easiest, quickest forms of play is exaggerate where you're at. Huh. So make wherever you're at bigger. And so if it's like, I can't play, it's so hard for me to play. I go, okay, well, let's play with that. Make that bigger until all of a sudden now you're kind of giggling because it seems funny. And then you just played. So exaggeration is one of my favorite ways. So when, it, when I am coaching people and they're in some place that they say they don't want to be in, I say, well, then let's make it bigger wherever you're at. And then it always pops them through.
0: Just a quick thanks to one of our sponsors, and we'll be right back to the show. This episode is brought to you by Wealthfront. Did you know if you missed 10 of the best performing days after the 2008 crisis, you would have missed out on 50%, 5-0% of your returns? Don't miss out on the best days in the market. Stay invested in a long-term automated investment portfolio. Wealthfront pioneered the automated investing movement, sometimes referred to as robo-advising, and they currently oversee $20 billion of assets for their clients. Wealthfront can help you diversify your portfolio, minimize fees, and lower your taxes. It takes about three minutes to sign up, and then Wealthfront will build you a globally diversified portfolio of ETFs based on your risk appetite and manage it for you at an incredibly low cost. Wealthfront software constantly monitors your portfolio day in and day out, so you don't have to. They look for opportunities to rebalance and tax loss harvest to lower the amount of taxes you pay on your investment gains. Their newest service is called Autopilot and it can monitor any checking account for excess cash to move into savings or an investment account. They've really thought of a ton. They've checked a lot of boxes. Smart investing should not feel like a roller coaster ride. Let the professionals do the work for you. Go to wealthfront.com/tim and open a Wealthfront investment account today and you'll get your first $5,000 managed for free for life. That's wealthfront.com/tim Wealthfront will automate your investments for the long term, and you can get started today at Wealthfront.com slash Tim. Loving pressure. Let's talk about loving pressure. That was a term that Jim sent over. Bringing loving pressure to relationships. She's a genius at bringing the right balance of pressure, kick you in parentheses, kick you in the ass, and love, in parentheses, support, understanding, empathy, and as a result, she's a black belt in practice and practicing candor. So this is something that has always struck me in our interactions. This is not going to be a perfect segue, but I have to bring this up because who knows if what I wrote for the notebook will ever see the light of day? I hope it will, maybe in a blog post or an article at some point. But could you please describe the voice mail message that you had some years ago? Do you know the one I'm talking about?
2: Yeah, yeah, it, it was something like, "Hi, you reached Diana." I may or may not respond to this call, and I'm gonna just listen to. If I feel called, I will, and if I don't, I won't. And <laughs> it was, it was, uh, <laughs> you know, just very much of uh, I'm gonna listen in and decide to whether I'll call you back and when I'll call you back. And so it was just basically saying, don't have any expectations.
0: So your candor has really jumped out as this sort of defining characteristic of Diana for me. So that's sort of the end of this bullet that's in front of me. But how should people think of loving pressure? Because I find myself flip-flopping often between two polar extremes. This is especially noticeable in my intimate relationships where either I'm like the hard-ass like, Olympic coach I'm kind of like the coach in the Disney movie Miracle, if anyone's seen that in ice hockey. Or I am, from my perspective, extremely permissive and overly supportive to the point of subjugating my own feelings. It's not entirely dishonest, but I'm kind of disavowing part of me to be really, really supportive. And this is especially true with my girlfriend, where there are times to, I've learned, I think this is important, there are times for me to listen to listen, for her to feel heard, and then there are times for me to listen to help with problem solving, and it's very good for me to clarify which she wants in advance. (laughs) But how do you think about loving pressure and bringing that to relationships?
2: Well, again, I think in order to do that well, you have to be connected to your head, your heart, and your gut. That's certainly been really clear to me that I have to be fully present to know then what's the balance of challenge and nurturing. So for example, I had a guy who called me recently was wanting to know if we could work together and he was very, very depressed. And I was asking him questions and he was really stuck and he had a lot of critical thoughts about himself and he couldn't get motivated to do anything. And you know, I asked him about therapy. He said, yeah, I've been in therapy for a year. And I said, okay, you need to fire your therapist. (laughs) I (laughs) I said, "Uh, because you got a lot of stories in your head that you're believing and nobody's challenging you. And the guy stood up, like he sat up really straight. And I felt him like pop out of some haze he was in, like the challenger so woke something in him. And so story I always make up about that guy is he was just getting so nurtured, but nobody was bringing the challenge that could help him break out of the state he was in. And so, you know, I just knew that because and I was thoughtful of from my own presence here of what do I need to say to this guy that he can hear I care about him, but I also say cut it out because you're, how you're organizing yourself here isn't going to take you to this new place you want to go. And he was really grateful and he said, thank you, I really hear you, that I need to question these beliefs I'm holding. So that's my practice over and over again is being able to listen to my body I was with another conversation the other day, and people were talking about their opinions about the world. And I just said, Hey, I notice I'm contracting. My body's contracting as I hear you guys talking. And that's all I had to say. It was just, I'm just going to report what's happening over here. And it was a form of challenge to them. And they went, Wow, you know, you're right. We're really in some fear based thinking here. So my body helps. Just sometimes I just report. I notice I'm bored or I notice I'm. Drawing, or I notice I'm getting confused, or I notice I'm contracting. Those are ways I might just express a little pressure by just revealing what's here and not making it mean anything, but just saying, Here's what's happening. Maybe this is about something I don't know about yet, but let me just tell you what's happening. I don't think we do that enough with each other.
0: So let me ask a question about that example. So there are some folks talking about whatever they were talking about and some kind of fear based. Or what they recognized as fear-based thinking in conversation, and you say, I'm noticing that I'm feeling contracted. Mm-hmm. I just want to let you guys know. Mm-hmm. Were these people and they respond, they responded constructively.
2: These are people I know well, and we know we play a similar game in which you've
0: agreed to yes. this type of interaction.
2: Yes. They would not right. I would not do this with just anybody.
0: Okay. Yes. <laughs> okay. So what would you do if, if you're in a mixed group or with people who have not agreed or made the commitments? And we could talk more about the 15 commitments and commitments in general. But is there a way that you can give voice to that with people who perhaps don't have the same playbook in front of them?
2: Sure. I might say something like, so what I hear is you believe you're right that XYZ is occurring. and." that could be true. And I'm just wondering if you're open to another possibility that maybe it's not as true as you think. So I might just gently bring a little challenger of asking them to consider that there might be another option. That's another form of how we challenge each other is questioning the stories we tell because we're all just telling stories all the time. Or I might say, oh, I hadn't considered that perspective. I've been holding this perspective and I might share my perspective. And it just depends on how well or not well I know the crowd that would have me be more thoughtful in how I might respond.
0: When you're working with a client, and I'm coming back to the initial quote that I read from Dustin. So she has a gift as a coach, she meaning you, has a gift for guiding me through introspection on the stories I create about events and people in a structured way that inevitably leads to perspective shifts. Could you walk us through how you might do that with someone. For instance, this guy who was depressed and he says, you know what? You're right. My therapist sucks. I'm being handled with kid gloves, but that's making me remain a kid. So I I could use like a occasional slap in the face from someone who's very supportive and challenging. And you say, okay, great. From that point then, what do you do with those stories and this person?
2: I'm a huge fan of Byron Katie and I really love her work. And I do the work with myself and I do the work with my clients. And I say, okay, is it true? Is it true, this thing you believe? Can you absolutely know it's true? And, you know, I'm wise enough now to know I can't absolutely know anything. And then what's it like when you do really believe you're right? And I help people find there's always some suffering. And then what would it be like if you just couldn't believe it? And People find, oh, that's nice. (laughs) It feels good. And then, okay, great. Could we just go look at the opposite? You can keep your righteous stories, but can we also ask you to hold the opposites as at least is true so that the mind can get to neutral and then something else gets to happen.
0: And you're doing that with turnarounds of various types?
2: All the time. I'm constantly asking clients to turn around.
0: Let's pick a hypothetical or a real example, just so people can get a flavor of this. So Byron Katie, the work I also have found really, really helpful in a number mm-hmm. of cases. And she's an unusual and powerful woman, to put it mildly. So, <laughs> so there are times when people will interact. And I, and I remember meeting her for the first time, and I was like, I don't know if I can do what she does. But... When you actually work with the worksheets, and people can find this online, a lot of resources are available for free online from Byron Katie. Could you walk through, say, a belief, which I think she defines as a thought we take to be true or something along those lines, an example of a belief, and then what, how you would do turnarounds on that belief and walk somebody through that?
2: Well, let's see if we can find something real for you, if you're willing to, like, see if we can find something that's irritated you lately. Something where it's kind of like, you know, maybe somebody did something that bugged you or you're upset about some policy out in the world or just any place where you notice you get a little triggered.
0: (laughs) This is more of like a paradox of choice issue (laughs) than anything else for me. Let me see.
2: If not, I can find one. I I always have judgment, so I can find something over here.
0: Well, I'll tell you, this is, I, my relationship, we'll actually use one that relates to the client you mentioned. So I have had extended depressive episodes the majority of my life. And so I have a lot of fear around slipping into depressive episodes and have viewed that whether it's now, whether it's a week from now, whether it's a year, whether it's five years from now as inevitable okay. right? and scary and dangerous. So let's use that somehow.
2: Okay. And it sounds like the judgment might be something like, I shouldn't slip into depression or yes. depressive episodes. Is that right?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or exactly. I shouldn't, it's dangerous, etc. cetera. Mm-hmm.
2: Okay. So which one is it? Is I shouldn't, or is it dangerous? Because it sounds like that one kind of lit up for you. It's dangerous if I go into a depressive episode.
0: Yeah, I think. Yeah, that's. Yeah, is that it? That is.
2: Yeah. Okay, it's dangerous if you go into a depressive episode. Is that true?
0: I always struggle with the first two questions. (laughs) The other (laughs) ones I have an easier time with. Is it true? I think it's true. Yes. Yeah. I I
2: mean, most of the time when I have my judgments, I do think they're true in the beginning. But then I go, okay, Tim. Can you really, truly, I mean, absolutely know it's true. Like you'd put your life on the line that if you have a depressive, that it's dangerous if you go into a depressive episode.
0: Well, you know, it's kind of tragically comic that you would use that phrasing. So here's what I can say. I can say for sure that it has been dangerous because I almost killed myself in college. Okay. Does that automatically mean that I will be at the precipice in that same way in the future? No. No. I can't say that with 100% certainty.
2: Yes, you can't say that with 100% certainty. So we're just trying to get to, I can't know for sure. I mean, I didn't kill myself in the end where you're here, right? right? right. And we don't mm-hmm. know if you would want to kill yourself in the, in the future. So we're just going, I can't absolutely know for sure it's true. So the first question is, is it true? Second question is, can I absolutely know for sure that it's true? You're saying No. Third question is, what's it like when you do believe that thought? So when you sit here and go, whoa, it's going to be dangerous if I have a depressive episode, what's it like for you when you believe that to be true?
0: It's terrifying. It's awful. Yeah. And anytime I feel even a twinkling of a possibility that I might be slipping into a melancholy state, like I went to a jazz performance recently and they were playing very minor key music, And I felt myself getting very uncomfortable. And actually, that was the example I used in my own mind when we were, it was the second example that came to my mind when I was thinking of the whole body no recently. Even though there were aspects of the performance I really enjoyed, but as soon as I started feeling myself slip into a sad, what I would call depressive state, there was a level of panic.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Sure.
0: So that's who I am.
2: Yeah. When I panicky. believe that to
0: be true, I'm a hypervigilant and panic prone.
2: Yeah. Makes sense. I mean, I feel it right now. If I believed the story that if I get into a depressive state, it's going to be dangerous, I feel panicky. I can feel that hypervigilance. I can feel like, oh, like really anxious
1: yeah yeah yeah
2: Yeah. sure so that's your experience so let's just imagine that i have this superpower and your brain is a computer and that thought it's dangerous to go into a depressive state is actually like a computer program and i have the ability to delete that program out of the computer of your brain it's gone so right now i just did it it's gone So we're just going to pretend for a couple of minutes here. And if you just couldn't believe that anymore, what's it like?
0: Oh, I think I would have almost certainly would have much more calm, much more presence, right? I wouldn't be future tripping and stuck in anxiety. I would be much more joyful. I would have more space for other people because I wouldn't be stuck on the me, me, me show. <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah, and I like to even get, it, get yourself even more present. Like sit here, and sometimes I even encourage people to close their eyes, but let yourself drop in right
3: here in this conversation. And you're now a man sitting here who can't find that thought. It's a little more meditative this way. Using your breath, keep opening. What's it like to be here, to be you, to be in this moment without the thought? There's no thought that's replaced it. You're just here without that one.
0: Relaxed, optimistic, energized.
2: Yeah, yeah. And my experience is the more I drop in, the more I get to experience more states of presence. Especially like when you go into that relaxed, you could even drop in even a little more and it keeps opening up and these states can keep opening to more and more states of
0: well-being. Could I do a quick sidebar? Yeah. A question, which is, so I think a lot of people listening and even me right now, I'm starting to get a little secondary anxiety by telling myself the story, well, wait a second, if it is actually dangerous, I don't want to just go into a place of denial where good. I take off my seatbelt while I'm driving at 80 miles an hour psychically. That sounds like a bad idea, right? So good,
2: good. I don't want you to stop thinking.
0: So I suppose I just wanted to get your reiteration that this is a, the objective is not to invalidate the belief. The objective is to do an exercise embracing other alternatives.
2: And the objective is to understand that at the moment, at least, a depressive state isn't what's creating the anxiety for you. It's the belief that it's going to be dangerous that creates the anxiety, right? That's what we're going after here is we're going after the recognition that your depressive state, we actually don't know how you will or will not be. But right now, the danger you're creating is in your own head by believing you're right about your story. Mm Mm-hmm. And so we're helping you question that so that you can now be aware and present for the possibility that you might be going into a depressive state in the future. And how can you do your best to mitigate that, ride it if you do have it happen so that you're not at the effect of it?
0: Mm -hmm. Thank you. All right. So what's the next step?
2: So then the next step is we don't want you to get rid of, it could be dangerous because I don't know, maybe it could, but we want to help you come back to recognizing that the opposite is at least as true, that it doesn't have to be dangerous. So we're going to have you go, it's not dangerous going into a depressive state, is at least as true. Can you give me a real example, one that not just your head, but your heart and your body, like there's something that your whole system goes, ah, okay, I can see how it's true that it doesn't have to be dangerous. If I go into a depressive state, can you give me real evidence of how that could be at least as true?
0: So I'm doing two things here. I'm doing the exercise with you, and I'm also sort of providing an overlay for people listening. Nice. And please correct me if I'm getting any of this wrong, but what we're doing is we're taking the belief as a statement, and we're starting to play with that sentence and the words in that sentence and how it's constructed, right?
2: Yeah, we're specifically going after the judgment so that your mind judges, it's going to be dangerous. If I go into a depressive state, it's going to be dangerous. I'm right mm-hmm. about how dangerous it's going to be. So we just want to go, can we just look at how the opposite's true is it's not going to be dangerous if you go into a depressive yeah. state.
0: So the evidence, so now we're coming up with evidence for...
2: How is that statement, it won't be dangerous, at mm-hmm. least as true?
0: So I'll start with the present tense that mm-hmm. it isn't dangerous, because that it won't be dangerous is harder for me. But I will say, the fact of the matter is I'm here, and I've right. had dozens of depressive episodes. Yeah. And I'm still here. So if the danger is suicide, at least to this point, it's abundantly clear that that has not happened. so. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And I want you to really get that, not just in your head, but I want you to get that in your heart and your body because I feel you get it intellectually. Yeah. But I really want you to drop down and go, survey says, I've been in multiple depressive states and I'm here. It hasn't been
1: dangerous
2: in mm-hmm. that I haven't killed myself, if that's what you're calling danger.
0: Yeah. That's, so, that, that would right? be it.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so we want you to get that Down, especially in the body, like your breath, go, Oh, oh God, like really look and feel that. Yeah. Okay. Many times, depressive states. Here I am. Okay. Not dangerous. Mm -hmm. Give me another example of how it's true. It's not dangerous if I go into a depressive state.
0: Uh, I'm having trouble, honestly. I'm wondering if you can help me brainstorm here. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So I imagine people come around you, people help you.
0: Yeah, yeah. I need to get better at actually reaching out. But yes, when I do have supportive people around me, and I'm very lucky to have people who love me, who would respond at the drop of a dime.
2: Yeah, so I want you to feel that. Feel how, oh my goodness, I am surrounded by so many people and experts who could help me and have in the past. Like, it was hard to be dangerous if there's all these other folks around me who got my back.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I believe that for sure. Right?
2: And so I can see it again in your head, like intellectually, <laughs> part of what I want is for you to come back down in the body and really feel that. It's a somatic experience yeah. that I'm wanting you to get.
0: How do you, I know this. this is like the the remedial class with me but how do you help people to do that because it's it's challenging for me
2: just imagine one of the last times that you were in one see all the people who came around you really there were people there and i want you to just let your body feel that like feel oh yeah there were people who came and asked questions and gave guidance and offered support and listened and just let your body go let your breath open up and Feel from the body the direct experience of support, of non-dangerous that you did have in the past that wasn't just intellectual. It was a direct experience of the body.
3: Yeah. It's like, oh my goodness, there was so much support, so much interconnectedness. Breathe with that, feel that all the way down through the toes.
0: Yeah, I got it.
3: Yeah, nice. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. It's a whole different ballgame when you
2: include the body.
0: Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. the intellectual side is just like a glancing blow. I mean, it's not, it doesn't fully land.
2: Well, yeah, and you're actually not present here to have the experience of non-dangerous because if you're not allowing yourself to come down into the body, you're not fully here to access the the intelligence that's giving you a direct experience of not dangerous right mm-hmm. so you go okay great and then we go okay so it's not dangerous is at least is true we had two examples so far so we're going to go for one more and now you might even get more clarity of how it's not dangerous if you're listening to your head and your heart and your body how is it at least is true that going into a depressive state does not have to be dangerous
0: doesn't have to be. I mean, sometimes the episodes are very short. I don't know if that's, I mean, that's maybe not as overarching a line item as the last two that we did.
2: Okay, let's say it's long, because since long is the one that scares you. (laughs) So let's say it's a long one. How is the long one not dangerous?
0: I mean, this is something I've struggled with my whole life. So I'm not, I could use an alley-oop with Uh maybe another. Okay.
2: I'm just trying it on myself because i got to go in there. I'm going to try on being depressed and go in there with you. So I can feel I'm not
3: hurting myself. I can feel I'm surrounded by support. Another way, it's not dangerous. Could be... What I'm noticing
2: is, like, there's an awareness in you that knows you're depressed, right? Yeah. Yeah. So there's a witness who's there watching.
1: Mm. Mm Hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: There's a part that's never in, in danger. Who's watching the whole thing? Hmm. That part's that part's not experiencing danger.
0: Hmm. Yeah, the witness. The the uh, witness is there.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you could go. Oh, when I'm in the depressive state and I'm in my witness, it's
3: not dangerous for that one.
1: Hmm. Yeah. Let me
0: let me sit with that for a second. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's challenging for me. Uh, I'm I'm partway there. It's like mm-hmm. it's partially landing, since it's also the witness who panics. <laughs> it's uh,
2: well, I actually hard. don't think I don't think if you're re- the witness can't panic if you're in witness. If you're truly in witness, the one who's just a watcher, without mm-hmm. a judgment. Okay, the one who just says like I have a witness. It's like oh, check you out, Diana. You're scaring yourself about being on the Tim Ferris show. You know, that was, I, I literally said that to myself this morning. Oh, check you out. Now my witness is just watching, thinking I'm adorable, that I'm scared and doesn't have an opinion about it. Just watches and just, oh, there you are. Hmm. I just wonder if you have a, a relationship with that part of yourself that just can watch and observe and welcome whatever's happening without judgment.
0: There are times when I do. That's mm-hmm. that is a relationship that I want to continue and need to continue to cultivate. Yeah, but, great. But I think that's a good third, sort of third leg of the stool. On the
2: yeah. <laughs> so then we go. Okay, we want you to keep. It's dangerous. Sure, it's dangerous to get in depressive states. That can be true, but it's also at least it's true that it's not dangerous. And we can see examples of how that's at least is true. So what we're trying to get the mind to do is to see, okay, we'll give you both. You, they both can be true, and therefore they're both not true. So then what?
3: Then we get to be with what's underneath all the judgment. There's just, what do you notice? If you get to say they're
2: both true, they're both not true, then what do you notice when you imagine that you might
3: go into a depressive state at some point?
0: Well, if I'm Able to hold both of those equally, then the likelihood of panic and anxiety about possible panic—it's like panic about panic, <laughs>
1: right?
2: Right—is
0: uh, is going to be less if I can hold those two things.
2: Yeah, I call it walking the line. It's like a walk a line right down the center where I'm holding both is equally true, and I value both sides. Like, sure, because I think. I don't want to be stupid, and I want to dismiss something and be naive, but I want to be honoring that, hey, I'm not right, meaning righteous, about this story I have over here, because if I am, I'm going to cause myself some kind of reactivity. So now I just sit with, okay, depressive episode may happen, and then ideally, if I can walk that line, then all I'm going to do is learn. I'm going to be able to stay present to what's happening and learn along the way what needs to happen.
1: Yeah. Thank you. And then
2: I get to start to welcome. I might, you know, my experience is I have a lot more trust if I just am willing to welcome whatever's going to happen.
1: Yeah, (laughs) for sure. With a
2: preference. I have a preference not to go to a depressive state, for sure. But if a depressive state is what happens, okay, we'll learn.
0: Yeah, there's a. I don't want to take us too far off track, but a friend of mine actually just showed me a book which has been recommended a number of times. I have not read it, so I can't vouch for it. But called "Feeding Your Demons," but I at least like the title, and it's on this this exact mm-hmm. subject. Yeah, because
2: you feed and the demon every time you believe you're right that it's going to be dangerous. You feed the demon. And so then you're just gonna keep amping up the anxiety. And then of course, you have that much anxiety, over time you're gonna burn out and you're gonna get depressed.
1: <laughs> because yeah.
2: the body's yeah. gonna get intelligent and go, I can't do that, I can't run this anxiety all the time. Let's get depressed and just chill out
3: for a while. Yeah.
0: To connect this also for people with the process. So thank you, Diana, for taking me through that. And also these turnarounds, these rephrasings with the objective of, or at least the step of gathering evidence for each of these turnarounds, could be applied, and please correct me if I'm wrong, if we took, let's just say a belief that's causing you pain is, who knows, my sister is selfish, right? It's yeah. a simple right. way. So it could be right. my sister is selfish. Maybe there's something with your parents, and the sister's not pulling the weight, and you're pissed off, and so your belief is my sister's selfish.
2: And, and I might change it to my sister shouldn't be selfish.
0: Oh, yeah. That's great. That's great. Right. right. So my, my sister shouldn't be selfish. Uh-huh. And then you could have, you know, my sister should be selfish. You could have,
2: <laughs> I, I, should be
0: selfish. I should be selfish. I shouldn't or, be selfish.
2: Exactly.
0: And at the very least, I mean, in my experience, when I am triggered and I'm just so dysregulated <laughs> <laughs> that the idea of problem solving or coming up with good strategies is just a joke because I'm so emotionally dysregulated that doing this type of exercise at the very least just turns down the volume on the system reactivity. And then I can just breathe. So I found it very helpful as a pattern interrupt.
2: Yes. And to your point, this isn't a good tool to use if you are really dysregulated in the moment. I would recommend first using breath and movement to relax the nervous system to get yourself into more calm first. Because if you just try to use this as your first thing, you might likely use it as a weapon and just intellectualize it all. That'll just give you some temporary relief over and over again. So I do recommend first getting yourself, use some movement, use some breath, calm the nervous system. We say, you know, handle your blood and brain chemistry first, and then this is a
0: good tool. Yeah, for me, it's just go lift some heavy stuff. Go to the gym. Just stop. Yeah.
2: Well, I also, yeah. you know, if I were working with you, I'd have you say, I shouldn't have a depressive state, I should have a depressive state. And I'd really go argue for why you should.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And do that so that you get it in your body, not just into your head, but I should have a depressive state again. Because that's the other thing I hear is there's a arguing with, it would be bad, or I shouldn't have it, or I'm trying to avoid it instead of, well, If it happens, it happens. Yeah, and I and and it should happen instead of it shouldn't is at least is true, but that would be a good one to go play with because I think that would also help you be more open to life happening the way it does through you.
0: For sure, for sure. Thank you. I would like to, if you're open to it, shift a little bit to relationships, and I want to ask you. Specifically about your partnership with Matt. So, here's one of your superpowers as listed from Mr. Jim creating and sustaining a wonderful, intimate partnership with Matt, her husband, and lover since they were teenagers. Have her talk about the risks she and they were willing to take to keep the relationship alive and vital, growing and intimate. If you are game to talk about that, I would be very interested. Yeah. To hear more.
2: Well, it's a challenge. It's both a great gift to be with a partner. Since you were young, you get to grow up together. There's a lot of shared memories and shared friends. And there's a sweetness that it started out with you get to keep. And there's also a great challenge of the fact that we are different people who evolve and change. And so several times, at least three key times in our relationship, we've been willing to let it all go. And we've basically killed it off just said, the relationship as it was is done. Now let's just check and see what is the relationship that wants to happen moving forward. Maybe it's just friends, co-parents, maybe it's lovers, staying married, what is it? And so we have a lot of courage, both of us, to be willing to let go of what's not working and trust that the right form of the relationship will reveal itself. And it just so happens that, it continues to be us married. And I think we play around often. Sometimes we'll get up in the morning, I'll say something like, hey, you want to be married today? And he'll say, oh, well, what would that mean? What kind of a husband do I need to be? And we'll giggle and play around with, well, you you know, how about this and this? And then we choose. And that is, for me, we're always choosing over and over again. And we always are willing to, kind of to the point of using the work with Byron Katie of, I'm willing to open to the possibility that not being married is just as okay as being married. And what that has created is an incredibly vital, creative, ever-evolving, passionate marriage in which we're freed up to keep exploring new ways of being together. And I am really proud of my relationship. I think it's one of the greatest things I've ever done is the marriage that I have. We get a lot of feedback that It's an inspiring marriage to a lot of people who look to it. And I do think it comes with the courage to say no.
0: You mentioned at least, I think you said three times, that you've had this type of conversation. I would like to zoom in on the first conversation. Were you both already prepared and trained to initiate that type of conversation? did one side initiate the hey, let's decide if we want to remain as is, or if we want to take one of these other forms? I'm just wondering for people who are listening who have never had one of these conversations, maybe they've been at the breaking point, but they've never had this conversation.
2: I initiated it. It wasn't Matt's idea. I said, hey, I'm, this isn't working for me the way we're in relationship. And there's a different kind of a man I want to be with than how you are. (laughs) And I wanted another possibility. And so I didn't know how to do all this. I was just toddling around trying to figure this out. And yeah, I said, "I, I don't want to do it this way anymore. And so I thought that might mean that we needed to be separated and that we needed to end the marriage. And I was willing to, we actually got some support from counselors about telling our kids that we were going to divorce because that's the only direction it seemed like we were going to go. And then I had this great advice from a friend who said, okay, Diana, I love you both. If you think divorce is what needs to happen, that's great. But I hear you complaining that there's a certain man you want him to be that he's not. And she said, who is the woman you would need to be to call forward that man? And my stomach dropped. (laughs) And I
3: thought, I don't want to,
2: I don't know about that. What? And uh, I realized, oh, I would need to be a different woman. So we said, let's kill off this old marriage and let's see if we can create a new one. And I'm going to keep asking myself, who do I need to be to call forward the man I want to be with? And about six months later, I was with the man I wanted to be with. And I remember saying to him, You really changed. And he said, No, you really changed. (laughs) And and the truth is, we both really changed. But I was really grateful for that first conversation of being willing to let it go and then getting the feedback of, Hey, if you're the creator of who's showing up over there, who do you need to be? And for many months, I felt like I was going to throw up 24 seven, learning to be a much more vulnerable, needy (laughs) woman who called forward the man who could protect and lead in a way that I hadn't been willing to be in the past. Hmm.
0: How did you, thank you for sharing all this, by the way, and very courageous and vulnerable, and how did you figure out who you needed to be, who that woman was to call forth the version of your husband or the man who you wanted to be with? Did you have help? Was it obvious once you sat with it in terms of the changes that needed to be made on on your side or the things you needed to cultivate or drop? How did you arrive at the answers?
2: At first, I didn't know. I just knew I was really scared when I asked the question. I believe that fear is, when we're present, is an intelligence that says something needs to get learned. Something needs to get learned. So when I had that fear, I thought, oh, wow, something needs to get learned. There's, I don't know something here. And so that was my first clue that her question was powerful, is the fear that arose in me. And then I just kept asking the fear, what needs to be learned? I just kept being really broad in that curiosity. I got into a state of wonder. I wonder who I would need to be to call forward the man I most want to be with. just kept asking that. I wonder, and I let it be okay that I didn't have to know because I didn't know. I've been, you know, with him for a long time and I didn't know. So I had to be willing to listen and learn from something greater than my own experience so far. And so it was in that level of curiosity that I just found my way. And it was... Baby steps, you know, a little bit here, a little bit there. And we've had several versions of that often, or not often, but the the three versions were all some version of me. Something needs to get learned for the next evolution here of this relationship.
0: Do you have recommended resources or practices that couples can seek out or embrace? So that they are better prepared if they get to these decision points? Or just overall with respect to nurturing sort of a healthy co-created relationship. Are there any any books, any particular practices that you would highlight for folks?
2: Matt and I studied with gay and Katie Hendricks for years at the Hendricks Institute. They did a lot of relationship work. They still do a bit of it, but I learned so many tools there on how to get off the drama triangle i learned about personas and about how i get caught in these personas that then unconsciously require the persona of my partner to show up in a certain way that then i complain about and i learned about how to unwind those or shift them when i wanted to i learned about the importance of feeling my feelings i learned about really questioning my stories i learned about polarity and how important it is to honor polarity that shows up in couples and making sure that I honored both sides of the polarity equally. For example, a lot of couples argue about money and almost always there's one that we call the gas and one who's the break and somebody who's more free flowing with money and somebody who's more controlling about money. And that's a, can we honor these polarities and can we see the value in both of them? Because usually I was the one who wanted to spend the money and, and my husband wanted to be, hold on to the money. And we would get into a battle about, you know, you're keeping me from having joy in my life because you're so stingy about money. And he'd say, you're going to make us all broke because you're just so unconscious about spending it. And so honoring that those two sides of the player are actually allies that are here to create just the right balance to take care of ourselves and have fun. And so Those are all different skill sets. There's so many different tools. And I would say that our book, The 15 Commitments of Conscious Leadership, we wrote it for leaders, but really it could be a perfect guidebook for couples if you just apply couple examples in there, because that's what really created the beautiful relationship that I have are those commitments. And those all have tools and skills that are associated with them
0: could you give us a few examples of some of these commitments? And of course, I I would recommend people read the book. I think it's very valuable, but could you give us a handful of examples of what these commitments are?
2: We got a lot of these from Gay and Katie Hendricks. They were the ones, they wrote the first two commitments word for word. And the first two commitments, the first one is all around, I commit to take radical responsibility for the results in my life. And that's a cornerstone commitment. And you know that looks like some guy uh, who I was coaching the other day called me up and said, my CEO is not giving me the feedback I need to grow as a leader. And so I had him teach me the class. How do you create the CEO not giving you the feedback you want? He's like, what? I'm not creating that. I'm not the effect of it. He's not giving it to me. I said, teach me the class. So he actually thought for a moment and said, well, value the CEO's time more than your time don't reschedule when the CEO breaks your one-on-one meetings. Don't ask directly for the feedback you want. And he started to giggle and realized, oh, I'm the creator of not getting the feedback I want. That's radical responsibility. So people often, we say the thing you're complaining about is often the thing you're committed to creating. And if you can own that, that's radical. And then the second commitment is all around letting go of wanting to be right. And what we mean by that is the defending yourself righteously that keeps you from learning and growing. Those are the two cornerstone commitments, one and two. I think we even say in the book, like, you could stop right here and just practice these for the rest of your life. But then there's the commitment to really feel feelings. And specifically, what I noticed, and we talked about this, you and I, a little bit when you were thinking about writing this notebook, was how much we're trying to control each other feeling feelings. So like, I don't want to say no, because I don't want you to have a feeling over there. And I really think I'm right. You shouldn't have them. And I don't want you to have a feeling because then maybe I'll have a feeling. And I see how much of our drama in the workplace and at home is coming from suppressing feelings in ourselves and each other. Candor is a commitment to be able to say what's going on rather than conceal it, which then causes me to have to start to withdraw and ending gossip is another commitment, really being impeccable around agreements so that I do what I say I'm going to do is another commitment. Those first six, that's what we focus a lot in the business world. When we come and work with teams, we have them work on those six commitments to help secure the identity and relax drama. And then once that's done, then we have things like, let's look at appreciation, the commitment to appreciate, The commitment to play and rest, the commitment to live in our zones of genius, and then the commitments get even deeper into being the source of approval, control, and security rather than trying to source it outside of yourself, which is probably one of the most difficult commitments of all, and also the commitment of experiencing that you already have enough, which most people also struggle with, especially at least in the business world, I rarely ever come across anybody who has enough time. And then they go on from there to being able to create a win for all solution, which is one of my great joys to work with a team where there's a lot of different needs. And it seems like they can't come up with a solution where they all win and helping them do that. And finally, be the resolution to that which you see missing in the world. So if they're not listening, be a better listener. If they're not taking care of things, take care of things.
0: Do you still use. Or recommend people use Mind Jogger. I read that at least for a period of time, you used an app, I believe it was Mind Jogger, that would ask you multiple times a day, Diana, in this now moment, are you above the line or below the line? And I still use it. You, you do? All right. I so- still
2: use it. I use it every day. And I ask that basic question, where are you? Are you above the line? Meaning, are you in a state of trust or are you below the line in a state of threat? So I ask that. I have it seven times randomly per day. It pops on my screen and I pause and look and check. For me, it's like lifting weights every day. So that's one. And then I use other questions that I rotate around. Like one I'm really liking right now is, is this exquisite, Diana? Is this moment exquisite and then it gives me a pause to think about how could this be more exquisite
0: what does that mean to you
2: exquisite is whole body yes to me you know is this a whole body yes is this ah is this yes i'm in my zone i feel fully alive i'm doing what i most want to be doing i'm on purpose
0: what other prompts do you have or do any others come to mind?
2: Oh, yeah. I have a question for each of the commitments. So I rotate them around, like, what are you feeling right now? So if I need to keep checking in with my feeling states, another one would be, what do you appreciate about somebody around you right now? And then I'll use that as an opportunity to speak that out loud, because I'm really a big fan of lots and lots of appreciation. Another one, do I have enough time right now? I use that one. Are you experiencing enough time right now as a way to pause and go, oh. Good. That's, I'm so glad I asked myself that question because I can feel I'm in a scarcity of time and let me stop and pause mm-hmm. and get back into the present moment where there's always enough.
0: If you could email those questions slash prompts that you have for each commitment, I would love to. I just downloaded Mind Jogger this morning. I would love to start playing with those if you're open to it.
2: Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: Maybe we could put them in the show notes as well. And that way people can find them for themselves. I have to say, you know, I really think you are a master of prompts and questions. And we we don't have to go through it at length. I was actually going to read every single bullet. I'm not going to do that because it'll take a bit of time. But you have a piece on LinkedIn. It's an article called How to Assess Self-Awareness in a Hiring Interview. Now, people might hear that and say, why the hell are you bringing that up? It sounds so niche. It sounds so specific. It's only going to apply to 3% of your listenership, but it's a great example of questions and prompts for uncommon insight. I was very impressed with the questions. I'll give just a few examples. Describe a time when you were tempted to blame someone else for something, but instead resolved it by owning part of the issue. What percentage of agreements do you currently keep with the people you live and work with? What causes you to break agreements the most? (laughs) How do you approach broken agreements? I mean, these are outstanding questions. Not just, by the way, for hiring people, (laughs) right? But uh, I I found these questions and prompts to be outstanding. So I will also link to those in the show notes, and people will be able to find that article.
2: Well, my clients were asking me, "Hey, how do we interview if we want?" People who want to come and be in a part of a culture that doesn't have as much drama, what should we be asking that would make sure that we knew they were a good fit for the culture we're creating here? And so that was what caused me to put those questions together. And I use them myself. You know, we were just, we just did a couple of big hires at the Conscious Leadership Group, and we almost exclusively focused on self awareness and people's ability to have candor take responsibility, keep their agreements as as the one of the primary things we were looking at because, you know, they were already very successful candidates. So we knew they were they'd had a great pedigree already. So we wanted to make sure they were a good culture fit because we're really committed to no or very little drama in our workplace.
0: Diana, we could go for hours and hours and hours. We might just have to do a round two sometime. I'd I'd love to because I'm curious, quite frankly, to know what books outside of the 15 commitments of conscious leadership have you gifted the most to other people? Or gifted a lot doesn't have to be the most, but what books have you gifted a fair amount to people?
2: The Big Leap by Gay Hendricks is probably the book I've gifted the most. And the one I've recommended the most of any other book. And also conscious loving for couples, because you asked that question earlier. Conscious Loving, I think, is a fantastic book for couples who are wanting to get more connected is another one I've gifted a lot. Those are the two that come top of mind. two
0: primaries. For people who just want to preview, what is The Big Leap about or what is it for?
2: The Big Leap is all about learning to live in your zone of genius, which I think is just the most fun thing and to take a look at what are the things that keep us from living in our zone of genius. And so I tell every leader I coach to get it, and 100% of them have said it was a valuable read. And Gay's just come up with a follow-up book on zone of genius that just came out last month that I imagine will be another book I'll be recommending and gifting. Because I find that inside of all of us is some creativity that When we are in that place, time and space go away. It's so fun and makes life so worth living. And I really am excited about supporting people and living as much as possible in that zone of genius.
0: Well, I think you did a a damn fine job of it. It's been fun to get to know you. It's been fun to also get to know you in this chat a bit more and doing homework it's always fun to do research on friends which would otherwise be super creepy and like google stalking but i have (laughs) i have a pretext and excuse which is doing interviews and people can find the conscious leadership group at conscious.is and certainly all the social and so on can be found from that jumping off point you also have a lot of pdfs and resources for people On the website. So I encourage people to check out the website. We'll link to that. We'll link to prompts. We'll link to everything that we discussed in the show notes at tim.blog slash podcast. Diana, is there anything else that you would like to say or ask any request of the audience? Anything at all that you'd like to add before we come to a close?
2: I feel pretty heartbroken these days about the drama that is happening amongst
3: us. and. I'm actually grateful for the heartbreak because it's helping me connect more with with love. And one
2: of the things I'm doing is facing. I'm really facing the cost of the drama that we're having. Um, and so I think one of the things I most hope people will do is have the courage to face the cost of the drama that we are creating in our workplaces that has people so overwhelmed at work, the cost politically environmentally and that they're willing to face it let their hearts break wide open and then from that place get curious and excited about what else could we create together what else is possible because that really excites me and I think I don't want to argue with the way the world is it's just fine the way it is and I have a preference for a lot more play and creativity and togetherness and, and curiosity that I find when we drop the drama.
0: That is an excellent place to close. And what what a enjoyable and I think very helpful for me conversation. So thank you very much, Diana, for, for making the time and being so present. Thank you.
2: Uh, my, my great pleasure. I'm I'm so grateful for all the ways you go out into the world and bring forward things that help people live more connected and valuable lives. And it is one of the things that I believe your depression has been a great gift is I don't know that you would have done this if you hadn't have had the depressions that you had and needed to find yeah. the tools that you needed. So I'm, I'm grateful for your depression and, <laughs> uh, and, uh, and for oh, your own unique oh. journey that has now enhanced so many of ours. So, mm. so thank you so much.
0: Oh, thank you so much, Diana. I really appreciate it. Thank you. And for everybody listening, stay strong, get curious, check out the show notes at tim.blog forward slash podcast. And until next time, thank you for tuning in. The coolest things I've found or that I've been pondering over the week. That could include favorite new albums that I've discovered. It could include gizmos and gadgets and all sorts of weird shit that I've somehow dug up This episode is brought to you by Tonal. Imagine having an entire gym's worth of equipment in a device smaller than a flat screen TV. Something that could fit potentially even in a closet. Fits in my closet. By eliminating traditional weights, Tonal can deliver 200 pounds of resistance with a sleek design that can fit nearly anywhere. It's like having an entire gym and personal trainer right in your home. Tonal's patented digital weight system senses your strength and adjusts the weight automatically in real time so you can get the most out of every workout. I have a number of friends, including competitive athletes, who have doubled their strength in short order in a lot of exercises. And part of the reason that's possible is it uses a revolutionary system of dynamic resistance powered by electric motors for strength you can feel. You can also do things like eccentrics. Over time, Tonal learns from your body and automatically increases the weight exactly when you can handle it. Tonal also uses 17 sensors to provide real-time feedback on your form and technique, allowing you to get the most effective workout every time. It's a strength training machine with adjustable arms that provides more than 170 exercises for a full body workout. And that can include squats, deadlifts, bench presses, overhead pulls, bicep curls, and more. So check it out, try Tonal, the smartest home gem for 30 days in your home. Tonal is so confident that you'll love it, they offer a full money back guarantee. You can now get Tonal from $63 per month at 0% interest over 48 months. Visit www.tonal, that's T-O-N-A-L.com, and for a limited time, get $100 off when you use promo code TIM100 at checkout. That's www.tonal.com promo code Tim one hundred T I M one zero zero Total. Be your strongest. This episode is brought to you by Blockfi. Blockfi is building a bridge between cryptocurrencies and traditional financial and wealth management products. They're creating innovative products to advance the digital asset ecosystem for both individual and institutional investors, and its platform now manages more than $12 in assets. Full disclosure, I became excited enough about this company that I ended up becoming an investor. Moving on. BlockFi, that's B-L-O-C-K-F-I, offers a wide spectrum of services, and I'll mention just a few here. First their BlockFi Rewards Visa Signature Credit Card provides an easy way to earn more Bitcoin because you can earn 3.5% in Bitcoin back on all purchases in your first three months and 1.5% forever after with no annual fee. Second, BlockFi also lets clients, that would be you, Easily buy or sell cryptocurrencies, including but not limited to, they have a wide selection, Bitcoin, Ether, Litecoin, and Pax G, as well as USD, that's United States dollars-based stable coins including USDC, GUSD, and PAX. BlockFi aggregates liquidity to offer seamless trade execution and pricing. BlockFi also offers instant ACH so you can move funds onto the platform and immediately start trading. On their platform, you will soon be able to trade with ACH. Meaning that you'll be able to buy cryptocurrencies directly with your bank account. And there's a lot more coming. So check it out. For a limited time, you can earn a crypto bonus of $15 to $250 in value. Again, for a limited time, you can earn a crypto bonus of $15 to $250 in value when you open a new account. Get started today at blockfi.com slash Tim and use code Tim at sign up. That's blockfi.com, B-L-O-C-K-F-I.com slash Tim and code Tim. Let's go.